B.F. Morgan, or Frank, as his friends called him, lived in the small farming town of Mooresville, Indiana. He owned a quaint grocery store in town, so he knew all of the residents well. Frank assumed that Saturday, September 6, 1924, would be just like every other day, and so far it was. When 10 p.m. came around, it was closing time. He wrapped the bills in the cash register, secured them in his pocket, and locked the doors. He took the same familiar route home, down South Jefferson Street. But as he passed the first Christian church, two men leapt from the darkness and struck Frank with an iron bar. Clinging to consciousness, he collapsed to the ground. Eventually, when he tried to stand, he was met with a 32 revolver. The cold tip of the gun was firmly pressed to his forehead. Frank needed to make his next choice carefully. He swatted the weapon away and began wrestling with his attacker, trying to gain control of the revolver. That's when a shot was accidentally fired. It didn't hit anyone, but it was enough to scare the robbers away. They fled the scene with Frank's money, roughly the equivalent of $750 today. Frank needed 11 stitches for his head wound, but he was lucky to have escaped with his life. One of his attackers would one day become public enemy number one, the notorious bank robber, John Dillinger. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a ParCast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. This is our first episode on John Dillinger, the 1930s gangster who the FBI deemed public enemy number one. After pulling off 24 bank heists and three jailbreaks, Dillinger became one of the most famous celebrity criminals in America. In 1934, the FBI executed him in front of Chicago's Biograph Theater, or so we're told. This week, we'll take a look at the official story, following Dillinger's life of crime leading up to his supposed death. But next week, we'll explore three conspiracy theories, two of which suggest that John Dillinger might have actually faked his death. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. John Herbert Dillinger first encountered death at a very young age. His mother, Mary Ellen Molly Lancaster, passed away in 1907, just before his fourth birthday. The Dillingers lived in Indianapolis, Indiana. Johnny's father, John Wilson Dillinger, owned a grocery store. 
After Mary's passing, John Sr., an already absent father, found it difficult to juggle work and being a single father. So Johnny's 18-year-old sister, Audrey, took on parenting responsibilities. When his father remarried in 1912, Johnny wasn't initially fond of his new stepmother, Elizabeth Fields. She was receiving the affection he never got from his father. As a result, he acted out. But his actions always came with consequences. In his book, The Dillinger Dossier, crime author J. Robert Nash notes that John Sr. was abusive. Some accounts suggest he would lock his son in the house for days unattended or tie him to a bed without food or water. One afternoon, John Sr. came back to his store to find Johnny handing out free chewing gum to a young girl. John Sr. grabbed the gum and struck his son hard, sending him crashing to the floor. As young Johnny got back to his feet, he wiped the blood from the corner of his mouth with a smirk. He wouldn't give his father the satisfaction of knowing he was hurting. In his early teens, Johnny started showing promise as both a student and a baseball player. But that didn't stop him from getting into fistfights, skipping school, and stealing. In fact, he expressed no interest in continuing his education past middle school. All he really wanted was independence from his father. In order to make that happen, he needed money. And so 16-year-old Johnny began looking for a job. The United States was preparing to enter World War I, so finding a job was easy. Millions of men were preparing to ship off to battle and leaving empty positions behind, just waiting to be filled. Before Johnny entered high school, he began working full-time. He was a runner for the Indianapolis Board of Trade and an assistant at a machine shop called the Reliance Specialty Company. Johnny developed a reputation for being reliable and good with his hands. But in 1920, John Sr. took it all away. He moved the family to the countryside. He wanted Johnny to go back to school. But after only a semester back, Johnny dropped out and started riding his motorcycle to work. Every day, he'd ride 18 miles to and from Indianapolis to work. Over the course of the next few years, Johnny developed a reputation as a ladies' man. He fell in love with his uncle's stepdaughter, Frances Thornton. Before long, Johnny had proposed. But Johnny's uncle believed they were too young. He forced them to end things. On July 21, 1923, the two reportedly broke up. Afterward, he stole a car from a church parking lot. With a gun in his pocket, Johnny drove all the way to Indianapolis. He was heartbroken and filled with rage. Nobody is quite sure what he was planning to do. Possibly not even Johnny. But when he arrived in Indianapolis, the first thing he did was ditch the car. He trekked all over the city till the early hours of the morning, maybe trying to clear his head. But his peace of mind was interrupted when he crossed paths with a cop. The officer insisted on questioning him. Johnny held his breath, giving only vague answers. The cop grew suspicious and moved to place him under arrest. But Johnny was slick. He spun out of his jacket, leaving the officer gripping only leather. Then he took off down the street. 
the officer tried to pursue him, but Johnny escaped unscathed. For the first time in his life, John Dillinger was a fugitive. He found a small barn on the outskirts of the city and hid out there for a day or two, weighing his options. He figured he'd be caught eventually, but maybe there was a way around it. If he joined the Navy, all would be forgiven, so that's exactly what he did. By the end of July 1923, naval recruit John was shipped out to the USS Utah, but he wasn't exactly cut out for the Navy lifestyle. His task was menial, to keep the boilers running by shoveling coal, and he found the work beneath him. So, when the ships docked, he'd just leave, without any warning. He was likely going to visit bars and brothels. Each time he returned, his superiors would slap him with fines or send him to solitary confinement, but it didn't seem to affect Johnny. He certainly didn't learn any lessons, because one day, after being granted a 24-hour leave, he left and never returned. Johnny claimed he was dishonorably discharged due to a heart murmur. There's, of course, no evidence to support that claim. The Navy listed him as a deserter. Whatever the case, it didn't really matter. Johnny was just excited to return home. In 1924, 20-year-old Johnny Dillinger returned to Mooresville, Indiana. After the Navy, he was especially excited to have some female companionship. In April, the impulsive heartbreaker was married to 16-year-old Burl Ethel Hovius. But as one might expect, John Dillinger didn't make for the perfect husband. He spent his time playing baseball and drinking with teammates. But drinking in 1924 wasn't like it is today. Prohibition was in full swing. Four years earlier, the 18th Amendment to the United States Constitution went into effect, banning the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors. But the reason prohibition often calls to mind speakeasies, pianos, flappers, and booze is because, despite the ban, alcohol didn't go anywhere. In fact, following a brief reduction after the amendment was enacted, consumption rose, eventually increasing by an estimated 60 to 70 percent. Alcohol moved from the free market to the black market, from being a staple of the American home to being contraband. As it did, the line between crime and leisure became incredibly blurred, which led to some very lucrative underground enterprises. And a spike in crime in general. One September night in 1924, Johnny was out drinking with his teammate, Edgar Singleton. And after having a few too many drinks, Ed apparently came up with an idea. They should rob the West End grocery store. Ed knew that the owner, Frank Morgan, carried cash home every night and that he walked alone. So Johnny followed Ed's lead. They hid in an alleyway along the route they knew Frank took. When Frank got close, they jumped out from the shadows with a gun and mugged him. This was a turning point for Johnny. The thrill was unlike anything he'd felt before. He was no longer Johnny, the aimless youth. He was John Dillinger, outlaw. But the high wore off quickly. Dillinger was eventually arrested. 
He received 12 years for assault with the intent to rob and conspiracy to commit a felony. He was fined $200, four times what he made off the heist. And so, at 21 years of age, John Dillinger was sent to Pendleton Reformatory, about 30 miles from Indianapolis. But he had no intention of staying. Upon entering the reformatory, Dillinger looked its warden straight in the eyes and told him, I won't cause you any trouble except to escape. And in less than a month, John Dillinger would attempt to make good on his promise. Up next, Dillinger's time in prison offers opportunity for the future. Now back to the story. John Dillinger's rebellion was born early. After the death of his mother at age three, he was left to be raised by an abusive father. By 20, he had stolen a car, run away to the Navy to escape the clutches of the law, and had gotten married. By 21, he was sitting in prison for armed robbery. His sentence was 12 years, but Dillinger had no plans of being locked up for that long. Less than a month in, Dillinger tried to break out of prison for the first time. It's not clear how he escaped his cell, but when guards realized he wasn't there, the alarms went off. He was eventually caught, hiding in a pile of packing goods, most likely waiting for a chance to make a break for it. But he would make three more attempts before the year was up. On his third attempt, he managed to saw through the bars of his jail cell. On his fourth, he started scaling one of the perimeter walls of the reformatory, but he was caught just before reaching the top. But it wasn't all for naught. The attempts earned Dillinger respect from some of Pendleton's most criminally revered inmates, men like Homer Van Meter and Harry Pete Pierpont. Pierpont was hot-headed, loyal, and only a year older than Dillinger. He was good-looking enough to earn the nickname Handsome Harry in the press, and because of his looks, he was apparently able to get away with a lot. Prior to landing in the reformatory, Pierpont was the brains behind a rather successful bank-robbing gang. In prison, he became a mentor to Dillinger. Meanwhile, Homer Van Meter was two years younger than Dillinger. He was thin but muscular and known for his cunning. He had lived on the streets as a runaway at a young age, where he became talented in the art of theft. And like Dillinger, Van Meter and Pierpont had a distaste for discipline and being told what to do. Each spent many nights locked in solitary confinement. Before long, Pendleton Reformatory decided the two men were too much hassle, so they shipped them away to Indiana State Prison, nearly 200 miles away. But Dillinger did not want to follow suit, at least at first. Once he realized that escape wasn't likely, he opted for his plan B, parole, which meant he had to be on his best behavior. Being transferred wouldn't look good when his hearing came around. But Dillinger would spend his 24th, 25th, and 26th birthdays in a cell before he finally got a hearing. 
In the weeks leading up to his parole hearing, Dillinger received divorce papers from his wife, Burl Ethel. She had no intention of being there for him if or when he got out. He was now without his friends and without a wife. All he had left was the one thing keeping him sane in prison, baseball. Pendleton Reformatory had limited athletics, but they did have a baseball team. And just before Dillinger's parole hearing, they played against a semi-pro team. The game was probably an organized act of charity, which is likely why Indiana Governor Harry Leslie came out to watch. Dillinger played shortstop, and apparently the governor was impressed with his talent for the sport. He was later quoted in a news article saying that Dillinger should be playing for the major leagues. Despite this ray of hope, when Dillinger's parole hearing finally came along, it didn't go as he hoped. His recent behavior wasn't good enough to make up for how he acted when he first arrived. Hearing that decision, Dillinger quickly asked the judge if he could be transferred to Indiana State Prison. His stated reason was that they had a better baseball team. Governor Harry Leslie just so happened to sit on the board of the reformatory. He took Dillinger's bait, hook, line, and sinker. He had no idea that Dillinger had ulterior motives to be closer to his friends, Pierpont and Van Meter. The governor fought for Dillinger's transfer, saying that baseball could lead to an occupation for him after he was released. So on July 15, 1929, Dillinger's request was granted. He was moved to the Indiana State Prison in Michigan City and reunited with Van Meter and Pierpont. And the three friends began dreaming of what their lives would look like after prison. But there was no talk of reform. The three men intended to continue their lives of crime long after they were released. Bank robbing, heists, women, murder. They weren't a means to an end. They were all a part of a lifestyle, and prison was just a momentary hurdle. It came with the territory. Their new plan was for Dillinger to make parole the next time he was put up for it. Then he would work to break his friends out. They didn't know it at the time, but what was forming inside the prison was the beginning of a gang. It would later be called the Dillinger Gang, or occasionally the Terror Gang, and they were collecting members. One of the inmates was a man named Walter Dietrich. Prior to his sentence, Dietrich was a member of a gang run by Herman Baron Lamb. Lamb was a German-American bank robber often considered to be the father of bank robbery. Eventually, Dietrich made Dillinger and his associates an offer. If they included him in any future escape plans, Dietrich would teach them everything Lamb taught him about robbing a bank. Dillinger accepted. And so Dietrich began coaching Dillinger and his friends on what he called the Lamb Technique. He schooled them on best practices for scouting, timing, precision, and accuracy. He taught them the importance of educating themselves on their intended target. Entrances, exits, windows, guards, the nearest police station. They were learning from the best of the best. Knowing that Dillinger would likely have the first opportunity to be freed, the men pooled their knowledge, 
contacts, accomplices, and potential targets. They then handed everything over to Dillinger in case he became a free man. And then, in May of 1933, he was. But the world he left when he went to prison in 1924 had changed. He had missed the collapse of the New York Stock Exchange in 1929 and the Great Depression that ensued. Twelve million Americans were now unemployed and crime was on the rise. Most importantly, however, Americans had lost faith in banks. Their savings had disappeared seemingly overnight in the crash. And those few banks that remained open were foreclosing on people's homes and businesses. In short, banks were being vilified as the enemy, and perhaps justifiably so. For Dillinger, this new cultural paradigm created an almost unfathomable opportunity. Fame. Anarchists who raged against the establishment were now Robin Hood figures, champions of individualism and warriors of economic turmoil. They were the country's most admired celebrities. Which was why famous bank robbers like George Machine Gun Kelly, Charles Pretty Boy Floyd, Bonnie Parker, and Clyde Barrow were plastered on the front page of newspapers. They were heroes, which made Dillinger's plans for continuing his life of crime almost too easy. Now 30, Dillinger returned to Mooresville, Indiana. He began by robbing supermarkets, stores, and small banks with a small number of Pierpont's men. He was unmasked, but still went undetected, his face hidden in the shadow of his brimmed hat. Newspapers gave him the nickname Jackrabbit because he would leap onto countertops before pointing a gun at whoever was in charge and calmly saying, this is a stick-up. And Dillinger loved the attention, but he had to maintain practicality. After each robbery, he set aside funds to purchase weapons, information, and assistance, anything that would help him break his friends out of jail. Over the course of just a few months, Dillinger turned a profit of nearly $50,000, worth just shy of $1 million today enough to start enacting his plans. And in September 1933, Dillinger smuggled weapons into the Indiana State Prison in boxes meant for the prison shirt shop. He hid the guns in spools of thread and marked the box with a giant red X to let his friends know who it was from. Dillinger wasn't known for his subtlety. Now all he had to do was sit back and wait. As he waited for news of an escape, Dillinger decided to visit his new girlfriend, Mary Longnaker, in Ohio. But his sudden fame wasn't without side effects. A day or so after his arrival, two detectives burst into Mary's apartment. Someone had recognized his face. They took Dillinger into custody and arrested him for an Ohio robbery that happened a few weeks prior. Meanwhile, one stayed over, Walter Dietrich found the 200-pound crate marked with an X that arrived for the Indiana State Prison shirt shop. Inside were a stash of guns hidden under a shipment of thread. He passed the news onto the other members of their crew. The plan was for the men to wait two more days before they executed their escape. On September 26, 1933, 
it was set into motion. At gunpoint, they forced the superintendent of the shirt shop, as well as the prison's assistant warden, to lead them out of the building to the front gates. From there, they briefly took a local sheriff hostage, stole a couple cars, and drove away. On October 12, 1933, about two weeks after their escape, they strolled into the Lima, Ohio jail. They heard Dillinger was being kept there. When they arrived, the only person on duty was the sheriff. When he asked to see the men's credentials, Harry Pierpont took out his gun, pointed it right at the sheriff, and fired. The sheriff slumped to the ground, soon to be dead at the hands of the Dillinger gang. And finally, they were free. Coming up, the manhunt for John Dillinger and his gang begins. Now, back to the story. After a series of robberies, John Herbert Dillinger found himself back in a jail cell in 1933. Luckily, he had just helped break his friends out of prison, and they were quick to return the favor. By October, John Dillinger and his gang of criminal friends were walking free, all at the same time. After news of their escape reached the public, the group of ragtag rebels became known as Dillinger's Gang. There was an admiration for Dillinger's style and charisma. He always made good news. So it wasn't long before his face was plastered on the front page of every local newspaper. And they didn't just report facts and statistics. They were interested in him. The media spun his life and actions into a form of entertainment. And Dillinger's actions were lucrative. After his escape from Lima, Dillinger and his gang brought in hundreds of thousands of dollars. But what distinguished him from other criminals was that he avoided violence. So to papers, Dillinger became an artist with an air of sophistication. Meanwhile, men like bank robber Lester Gillis, also known as Babyface Nelson, were brutish killers. Nicknamed for his youthful features, Nelson would walk into banks firing guns. He was a villain. Nelson earned a reputation in the press as someone who was volatile and irrational, someone to fear. He had, after all, killed more FBI agents than anyone else. Dillinger had killed none, but that didn't make him any less of an FBI target. The Federal Bureau of Investigation was formed in 1908 as an investigative arm of the federal government. Now, in the 1930s, the FBI was starting to launch a war on organized crime. But the fact that so many criminals were evading capture was beginning to humiliate the Bureau. Their reputation was hinging on capturing notorious men like Babyface Nelson and John Dillinger, two men who would soon become their primary targets. But these targets never stopped moving. On January 15, 1934, Dillinger allegedly executed one of the most controversial holdups in his career, the infamous East Chicago bank robbery. As the afternoon peaked, Dillinger and his teammate, John Red Hamilton, reportedly got out of a Ford Tudor sedan and approached the bank. While the exact sequence of events isn't entirely clear, 
Witness testimony claimed that Dillinger carried a black valise as he entered the lobby. He calmly placed the bag on the ground and pulled out a machine gun as horrified customers watched. Hamilton let the women and children escape to the street as Dillinger announced, this is a stick-up. Up with your hands, everybody. But while the male hostages inside were lined up and told not to move, the bank's vice president was at his desk. He was able to send a silent alarm to the East Chicago Police Headquarters. A few officers arrived at the scene, but they didn't see the getaway vehicle watching them from the other side of the street. And when they entered, they found themselves staring down the barrel of John Dillinger's machine gun. Dillinger took one of the cops and the bank's vice president hostage. He used them as human shields as he exited the bank with the stolen money in hand. But one of the other officers who was still free, William Patrick O'Malley, fired shots at the robbers. And when Dillinger shot back, he hit O'Malley and killed him. For the first time, Dillinger had blood on his hands. If John Dillinger was even there. Some have suggested that John Dillinger had become so popular in the media that he was wrongfully placed at the scene simply because witnesses wanted to believe it was him. Even though the reality was that the robbery didn't actually fit his usual modus operandi. Crime author J. Robert Nash even claims in his book, The Dillinger Dossier, that Dillinger was in Florida at the time with his new girlfriend, Evelyn Billy Frechette. But that wouldn't explain accounts that Dillinger was later found using cash with the same serial numbers as the one stolen from the Chicago bank. No matter what the truth is, however, the reality was that the public and officials believed that Dillinger was now guilty of first-degree murder. By the end of January, John and his team were captured and arrested. Dillinger was brought back to Indiana, where he was charged for killing the police officer O'Malley. Dillinger was placed in Crown Point Jail, notorious for its high security. He had no chance of escaping. Or so they thought. According to legend, Dillinger spent his limited time behind bars whittling away at a piece of wood. He was carving a wooden gun, which he painted with black shoe polish. Once finished, Dillinger convinced the guards that it was real. Together with his accomplice, Herbert Youngblood, he lured roughly a dozen men, including the warden, into a holding cell and locked it. Then he took a deputy of the jail as a hostage. They made their way out of the building and across the street to a car lot, where they stole the fastest car they could find. Once they were a considerable distance away from the prison, they tossed their hostage out onto the road. And just like that, Dillinger was a free man again. Before long, the city of Chicago, the state of Indiana, and the FBI each had created their own Dillinger squads. They were laser-focused on capturing the gangster that was making them look foolish. 
By the summer of 1934, FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover deemed Dillinger public enemy number one, and many of the men associated with him were in the top 10. Melvin Purvis, a special agent for the FBI Chicago office, was appointed by Hoover himself to perform one task and one task only, find and capture John Herbert Dillinger. Robbing a bank at this time was not considered a federal offense. Purvis and the FBI began their hunt for Dillinger after he crossed state lines with the vehicle he had stolen in his Crown Point jailbreak. Meanwhile, many members of Dillinger's gang were behind bars again, so he scrambled to find new recruits. Among them, Babyface Nelson, his rival celebrity convict. They were desperate times for John Dillinger. And they only grew more desperate. During a robbery in Iowa, Dillinger was shot in the shoulder. He needed a quiet place to lay low and recover. The gang settled on a small cottage resort called Little Bohemia in Wisconsin, far away from where they were being pursued. But the resort's owner, Emil Wanatka, recognized the celebrity criminal. Dillinger tried to reason with Wanatka, but it was no use. The lodge owner's wife got in contact with the police, who were able to reach Melvin Purvis at the FBI. In no time, Purvis was on his way to Wisconsin. Purvis and his agents happened to arrive on a busy night for the resort, so their original plan to lead a full-on assault had to be changed. There were too many innocent bystanders. Among them, a car in the parking lot was blaring music. When one of Purvis's agents ordered it to stop, they ignored him. The music was too loud, and so the agents opened fire. They began spraying the car with bullets. But it was the wrong car. They had killed an innocent vacationer and wounded two more. During the chaos, Dillinger and his team managed to escape the resort. They stole a few cars from the back parking lot and drove off into the night. They had evaded capture again and humiliated Purvis in the process. But Purvis did have a lead. The resort owner was able to identify Dillinger, helping create wanted posters. However, Dillinger quickly caught on. Later that month in June 1934, Dillinger decided to undergo plastic surgery. It was relatively minor, but he got rid of a few moles, filled in his chin dimple, increased the size of his nose, and removed his fingerprints. With his new face, he started operating under the alias Jimmy Lawrence. By this point, Dillinger was likely incredibly wealthy. Some accounts put the amount that he and his gang stole at around half a million dollars or $9.5 million today. But whether it was the thrill of the crime or his need to defy authority, Dillinger wasn't done. In a desperate attempt for one last big score, he rounded up his dwindling group of misfits. On June 30th, 1934, with a $20,000 bounty on his head, Dillinger robbed his last bank. 
Dillinger, Babyface Nelson, Homer Van Meter, and an unidentified accomplice burst into Merchants National Bank in South Bend, Indiana, but almost as quickly as they started, law enforcement arrived on the scene. Van Meter shot and killed the first officer to arrive. A local jeweler heard what was happening and tried to take down Babyface himself with a gun, but the gangster was wearing a bulletproof vest. Dillinger and the rest of his group grabbed two hostages and made a run for it. Once again, they escaped. The group scored almost $30,000, but several innocent people were harmed, kidnapped, or even killed in the crossfire. The FBI needed to catch them. In the summer of 1934, Dillinger and his newest girlfriend, Polly Hamilton, moved to an apartment in Chicago. There, they were friends with a Romanian immigrant named Anna Sage. She recognized Dillinger and saw an opportunity. Sage was about to be deported and thought she could use Dillinger as leverage to stay in the United States. She called a friend who was a detective at the Chicago Police Department and told him that she had valuable information. Before long, she was put in touch with Melvin Purvis. Sage and Purvis met on July 19, 1934. The FBI agent told her that he'd do his best at helping her stay in Chicago, but he couldn't promise anything. That was enough for Sage. She told him everything that she knew about John Dillinger. Most critically, however, she told Purvis that she occasionally went to the movies with Dillinger and his girlfriend, and she'd let him know the next time it happened. Three days later, on July 22nd, Purvis got a phone call. It was Sage. They'd be going to either the Marlboro Theater or the Biograph Theater that night. She wasn't certain which one, but she would wear a bright orange dress so that law enforcement could identify her. Purvis arranged for two groups of men to stake out the theaters. Purvis himself waited across the street from the Biograph Theater. He chose correctly. Dillinger came strolling towards the movie theater alongside Anna Sage wearing a bright orange dress. Purvis lit up a cigar. It was the signal to move in. When Dillinger realized what was happening, he pushed his way in front of the two women. Agents were approaching from behind, demanding his surrender. He reached for his gun and was possibly trying to flee down an alleyway. But it was too late. He was surrounded. Dillinger was killed by three bullets fired by the authorities. At long last, the cat had caught the mouse. Public enemy number one was finally dead. Today, Dillinger's name lives on in notoriety. After his death, one man wrote to an Indiana newspaper saying, why should the law have wanted John Dillinger? He wasn't any worse than the bankers and politicians who took poor people's money. Dillinger did not rob poor people. He robbed those who became rich by robbing the poor. But speculation around the nature and truth of Dillinger's capture has grown over the years. Some have even suggested that perhaps John Dillinger had another chapter to his tale. 
This week, we reviewed the official story, the one that says John Dillinger was heroically taken down by the FBI. Next week, we'll dig a little deeper and explore whether the man who was fatally shot outside the Biograph Theater was, in fact, John Herbert Dillinger. And we'll look at some alternate versions of the story. Conspiracy theory number one. John Dillinger's infamous crime spree was made possible by his own team of government informants. Police officers may have assisted in his escape plans, and bank owners may have helped him steal. Conspiracy theory number two. In their pursuit to catch Dillinger, the FBI accidentally murdered Jimmy Lawrence, a petty thief with a face like Dillinger's. Only the FBI covered it up. And conspiracy theory number three. The FBI staged the murder of an innocent man to end the embarrassing manhunt for Dillinger, the public enemy that no one could seem to catch. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. For more information on John Dillinger, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Dillinger dossier written by J. Robert Nash extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Trent Williamson with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jenna Lennon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy. Mm-hmm.